If God is able, we are able. Welcome to the podcast from One Cause Church. This morning, Pastor Eric is not here, you may have noticed. He had originally planned on being in Dillion this morning and launching the Sunday morning service there, but uh, circumstances beyond our control, that didn't happen. But Pastor Derek in Dallas had um, a, a family member pass away, and so he had to leave town for a funeral, so Pastor Eric had to go there. Just when I thought I was safe from having to preach, Eric is still not here. So I'm here to continue our series, the Route 66 series, and we have landed in the book of Esther. It just so happened that we landed with me preaching the book of Esther, or as Pastor Jeremiah refers to it as the woman's book. I think Eric must have felt the same way, and that's why he made sure he wasn't here to preach it. (laughs) So we are in the book of Esther today. And for those of you who are not familiar with the book of Esther, don't worry, I will recap it for you in just a moment. And for those of you who are, hopefully I can pull out something new for you as well. I do know, I have been made aware that the Cowboys are playing at noon today. And apparently since they're three and one so far this season, some of you care. So we'll try to make this as brief as possible. Uh, I'm just playing. Pearl's not here, so I'm not really worried about it. I'm not really scared of anybody else. All right, the book of Esther starts out um, with a Persian king. Uh, He's the king over a really large empire, and his name is Ahasuerus, something like that. But he's commonly known as King Xerxes, so we're going to go with that one because it's slightly easier for me to say. So King Xerxes was this great Persian king, and the, the kingdom was very, very wealthy. And King Xerxes just came off of a 180 day feast to start out the book of Esther. And how many of you know that after a six-month feast, what you need is a seven-day party? So seven days of partying, Xerxes goes into immediately following this feast. Well, he, um, he collects all of the men and throws a party in the courtyard of the palace. And at the same time, the queen is throwing a similar party for all the women inside the palace. So they have two separate parties, one for the men, one for the women. Well, on the seventh day of this party, and it says that they have, that the wine has flowed freely throughout the party, the king calls for his, his wife to come to his party because he wants to show off her beauty. Now, whatever your thought is on why the queen refused to respond to her husband's request, it doesn't really matter. But the fact of the matter is she didn't go. Maybe it was because she didn't want to be put on display in front of a bunch of drunk men. Don't really blame her. And maybe it's just that she was rebellious in her heart. Can't identify with that. So either way, when the king requested that you do something, it doesn't matter whether you're his wife or you're just common folk, you did it. So when the king called for his wife, the correct response would, been, would have been for her to go, but she did not. And um, unfortunately, we have encountered many, place, many people that are in a position such as Queen Vashti. That was her name. Vashti, isn't that beautiful? And she, 
the, the problem here was that she didn't just compromise her role with the king. She compromised her place of authority because here she was seated with all the women of the kingdom and she set, she's setting an example for them. And when the king called for her, she refused to go. So no matter what her reason is, she not only compromised her role, but she compromised the role for those who that she was in leadership over as well. Um, unfortunately, not all leaders will step out of their place of leadership before they make a stupid decision. Amen? That doesn't mean that all leaders are uh, bad, though. So because of this decision that Vashti made not to show up before her husband, he um, has gathered his advisory board, so to speak, and said, well, what should we do about this? And they said, listen, this is going to look really bad if you don't take care of this because she is setting this example for everyone else. So they decide to get rid of the queen, that she's no longer fit to be the queen. Well, after some time, the king continues to talk about the queen. The king continues to talk about the queen, and, and the, the men that are surrounding him see that he's beginning to miss her, and they're like, oh, this isn't good. So they go to the king and they say, listen, we'll go gather all of the virgins together and we'll bring them, we'll put them through this beautification process and we'll present them to you and you can take your pick and have a new queen. Sounds good. The, the king quickly got over the ex-queen. So all of the virgins were brought together and this is where our, the star of our book shows up, Esther. Esther was a, a young orphan Jew, Jewish girl who was, um, her, she was orphaned at a very early age, and so her cousin Mordecai took her in and raised her as his own. So she was among the virgins in the, in the vicinity, and so she was brought in to um, the king's quarters and put through this extensive beautification process. You know, they did all of the facials and all of that stuff that's necessary before they were presented to the king. And Esther was shown favor from the very beginning. Like the, the guy who was in charge of all of these ladies immediately uh, was favorable towards Esther. So um, during this time, Mordecai, like any good dad would do, is outside the gates of the palace pacing and he's constantly checking on Esther, seeing what her condition is, making sure she's okay and that she's being treated correctly. And in... in Esther becomes queen. She's anointed the queen. As soon as the king sees her, he's immediately smitten by her, says there's no need to be presented any of the other women. She's the one. And she was just that beautiful and had that much poise about her that she won the king's heart just like that. So now Mordecai, who's made a habit of hanging out by the king's gate, which the king's gate is kind of a meeting place. A lot of people did business at the king's gate. It wasn't just an opening to get into the, to the palace. It was, it was a um, prominent place in this uh, society. So Mordecai, hanging out by the king's gate one day, overhears two men plotting to kill the king. And these are two of the king's men. Well, Mordecai hears this, and immediately he goes to Esther, and he says, Esther, I've heard these two men plotting to kill the king. You have to let him know. And she said, okay. So she went to the king at once and, and let the king know that these two men were plotting his death. The king verified that it was true and uh, took care of the problem. I'm sure that they no longer had their lives. 
Uh, and Esther made sure that the king knew that it was Mordecai who uh, was responsible for saving his life. He, she gave all the credit to Mordecai. And at this time, remember that the king doesn't know Esther's association with Mordecai. So, uh, side note, there's another character who ends our story, or enters our story, and his name is Haman. Haman is one of the king's men who now the king has promoted to his right-hand man. He's the second in command. He is uh, just under the king as far as authority. But Haman is the kind of guy who wants all the pomp and circumstance that goes with his title. He wants, uh, you know, he's got the big head, and he wants the people to bow to him, and he wants them to honor him and acknowledge the authority that the king's given him. Well, and everyone does so. Everyone conforms to this, this way that Haman expects to be treated, all except for Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow to this you know, egotistical man. He refuses to uh, give him the honor that, that Haman decides that he deserves. So Haman's men approach Mordecai and they say, why do you not bow before Haman when he's asked you to do so? And Mordecai explains to him that he's a Jew and that he serves the one true God and that's the only one that he will give the honor and the, and the glory to. Well, this makes Haman very very mad. So Haman decides that not only does he want Mordecai destroyed, but he wants all of these people destroyed because he doesn't want anybody who's going to put um, somebody else above him and not bow to him. So he decides all of the Jewish people need to be destroyed. So being the second in command to the king, he approaches the king and he says, listen, and he kind of manipulates the story to get his way, and he says to the king that there's this group of people and they refuse to do things your way. They say that they have um, a different king that they're serving and that, they're, that, that their ways are higher than yours, and so they're, they're, uh, they have a different law that they abide by. He says, now listen, this needs to be taken care of, and just to make sure that it's done so, I'm going to pay for it myself. So Haman comes up with the money to take care of this little problem that's, that's, uh has arisen. So the king says, that sounds like a good plan. These people obviously need to be taken care of. You're willing to pay for it. And hands over his signet ring to Haman. Now this ring is the, um, is the, I forgot what word I'm looking for, but it's the, the sign of authority the king's authority. Anything that is sealed with this signet ring is, is just as good as the king declaring it be done. So this is the king handing over his authority to Haman to do something about these Jewish people. So Haman de declares a decree that all the Jews are to be killed. Um, but this, this decree is to be carried out 11 months from this, this time. And if you've never read the book of Esther, I encourage you to go back and see all the details that are in this story. I'm just trying to give you an overview so you have an idea of, of the story before we move on. So the decree is issued to go in all, 11 months from this time, all of the Jews are supposed to be destroyed. So De Mordecai hears of this decree. And of course, he's immediately 
concern for all of his people. So he gets word to Esther that he wants Esther to go before the king and plead for on behalf of, the, of all of their people. Well, Esther immediately lets Mordecai know that that's not how it works. She's lived in the, in the palace long enough and been the queen long enough now to know that you don't just approach the king, not even his own wife. You have to be, you have to be called for by the king in order to be able to um, have his attention. So, but Mordecai says, Esther, just because you're the queen and you're living in the palace now, it does not it does not remove the fact that you are a Jew. And when that's revealed, you're, you are more than likely going to be destroyed as well. And so you may be saving yourself for the time being, but all of us will be destroyed in the process. <clears throat> and he says, it just may, might be that you are in that place and you are in that palace for such a time as this. And encourages Esther that this was her role for this time. You know, there's a lot of unbelievers who do the same thing. They think that because they do a lot of good things and the good that they do in their life outweighs the bad, but they never acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Then they show up at the, at the gates of heaven and on judgment day and they wonder why those robes of righteousness that they've put on themselves aren't good enough. When their true identity is revealed, it's not going to keep them from the destruction that they're going to face. So Mordecai tells Esther that. And when Esther understands what Mordecai is saying, she says, I'll do it. I'll go before the king on behalf of my people. But she asks Mordecai to do something for her. She said, go gather the Jews and pray and fast for me for three days, and I will get with my maids and we'll do the same. Because she doesn't want to enter into this thing without being armed. In other words, you do your part and I'll do mine. It's a great picture of teamwork here. So Esther is praying and she's fasting, but she's also wise about the way that she approaches the king. Now, the first service laughed when I said this, but I don't think I'm the only person that do, that's done this before. But Esther used the beauty that she has to, uh, on her behalf at this time. Now, ladies, have you ever gone to a store and you're wanting to, you know, get like maybe an additional off, additional percentage off something that you're purchasing or you want some favor with the management? You don't go to the young teenage girl. You go find an older gentleman that you can bat your eyelashes at and that you can kind of, you know, sweet talk into giving you a good deal, right? I mean, come on, ladies, we use this from time to time or with our husbands, you know. I don't try to talk my husband into something while I'm in my sweats with my hair pulled back. I get dressed up and look real pretty, and then I try to talk him into it. I know I can get my way a little bit easier that way. So this is kind of what Esther does. She just goes and puts herself in a position where she's in the eyesight of the king. She parades her beauty in front of him until he says, I wonder what Esther's wanting. Esther, come here. So now she's been called for by the king, and she's safe to go and make her request known to the king. So the king calls her in, and he says, Esther, what is it that you're wanting? I'll give you whatever it is you want up to half my kingdom. Let me know. And she said, you know what? Have dinner. Let me prepare a dinner for you tonight. You and Haman, your right-hand man, come and dine with me. And he says, okay, sure. 
So she prepares this wonderful dinner for the king and for Haman, and she goes and she dines with them. And at that dinner, the king says, okay, so what's all this about? What are you wanting? I'll give you what you need, just up to half the kingdom. You can have it. And she says, you know what? Do me a favor. Let's dine again tomorrow night. Let me have a meal prepared for you and Haman again, and we'll get together, and, and I'll make my request known. And it never dawned on me before when I've read Esther that the three days that she asked Mordecai to fast and pray, that that is the reason for these two meals that she prepared. Because I kept going, why is she putting it off? The king already said, I'll give you what you want. But she's, she's getting her back up together, right? She's got these people standing behind her in prayer and they're fasting for her. So she's, she's stalling so that the favor of God can be built up for this situation, so to speak. So these... They, uh, a lot happens between the first dinner and the second dinner, though. And this is my favorite part of the whole story. I just love this. So after the first dinner, Haman leaves, and he's pretty puffed up. Not only is he the second in charge, and he's got everyone bowing to him and recognizing who he is in the kingdom, but now he's been invited to this special dinner who it's just him, the king, and the king's wife. So he leaves there thinking he's the man, right? Well, that all falls apart when he comes across Mordecai, the Jew who refuses to bow, refuses to acknowledge the authority that Haman has. And after he comes across Mordecai this particular evening, he goes home to his wife and he says, I know that the Jews are to be destroyed, but that's, that's too far away. I want this guy killed now. And she says, well, you seem to be in pretty good standing with the king. Why don't you just go to the king and ask to kill Mordecai now? And he says, good idea. In fact, I'm going to have my guys build this huge gallows to hang him on. And so he had his guys build gallows 75 feet tall so that when he got to kill Mordecai, it would be nice and humiliating. So that night, he, he begins this plan. Well, that same night, the king happens to not be able to sleep. So because the king can't sleep, he calls for the chronicles of the city to be read to him. What this is, is it's a big book. And everything that happens in the city is recorded in this book. And so this man comes in, and, and basically the king can't sleep, so he's going to take care of business. So this man comes in and starts reading the king the chronicles of the city. Well, he gets to the part where that man Mordecai overheard the men plotting the king's death and saved the king's life. So he says, whoa, whoa, stop right there. That's right, Mordecai saved my life. What did we ever do for him? And the man reading the chronicle said, well, we haven't done anything for him. So as the king is, is thinking this over, morning comes. And so here comes Haman up to the king's quarters because he wants to come and get permission to kill Mordecai, right? And um, for this, I want you to see in the scripture in in. Esther 6, verses 6. So Mordecai, I'm sorry, so Haman comes in, and the king's thinking about how he's going to honor Mordecai, and he says, Haman, Haman, come here. What would 
what should I do for a man that I want to honor? And Haman immediately with his big head starts thinking, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? So he comes in. Go back to six real quick. Let me finish that verse off. He says, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And he says, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Okay, move on. You knew better than me that it was time to move on. And Haman answered the king and said, for the man whom the king delights to honor, and he's thinking of himself, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn and a horse on which the king has ridden. So the best of the best, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and all the while he's picturing himself getting this honor. Parade him through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And this is my favorite verse. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So all those flowery details that you just got through describing to me, Haman, do all of that for Mordecai. So now Haman has to go to the very man he hates and parade him through the city with the honor of the king. I love that. That's like, that's the best. So this man that he was going to the king to try and have destroyed, he's parading to the city with all of this honor. So when he finishes, Mordecai just returns to his place at the gate and Haman is immediately shamed and he hangs his head and goes home and just starts complaining to his wife, you will never believe what I had to do today. And as he's telling her and, and some of his men what happened, they come to, to get him to come back for the second feast with the king and Esther. So he's being retrieved, and now these feasts aren't looking so great to him anymore. So he goes back, and in Esther chapter 7, they are... They're feasting for the second time, and the king finally says, Esther, what is it that you want? So Esther's ready to make her request known to God, and she says in chapter 3, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. Verse 4, For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue. I wouldn't have even said anything if we were being sold into slavery. Although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So what she's saying here is she's saying if we would, had just been sold into slavery, that, that would have been one thing. But we're being sold to be destroyed. And she's, this is a very wealthy king, so money's obviously important to him. She's pulling on his strings by saying, that, that the enemy could never compensate that the, for the loss that the king will experience because the Jews make up for a lot of the taxes that come into the kingdom. And so with all of them killed, there goes a lot of the income for the king and his kingdom. So she appeals to him at that time. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So immediately... 
the king answers and says, who is he and where is he who would dare to presume in his heart to do such a thing? Now he's furious. He's mad at the thought that someone would do this. And so Esther says, it's him and points to Haman who's sitting next to the king and says, he's the one who is going to destroy me and my people. And immediately Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Well, I bet he was. That's, that's not a place that any of us want to find ourselves. <clears throat> so in the king's fury, he's like, what am I going to do with this man? And I love this part because one of the guys that's nearby says, uh, there happens to be a gallows that's built over here that's 75 feet high. I mean, it was intended for Mordecai, but... And so the king immediately says, hang Haman on the gallows that he built to hang Mordecai on. I love it. Um, am I a little evil for loving that, or do y'all love it too? I mean, come on. So uh, Haman is gone, and the king takes all of the authority and the position that he had given to Haman and hands it over to Mordecai, including the signet ring that he retrieved from Haman, and now it's in Mordecai's possession, which represents the authority of the king. But there's still the issue of the first degree, decree that went out. See, when the, the decree goes out and the king's seal is on it, it's irrevocable. So that first decree that, was, that went out uh, from Haman to kill all the Jews, that's irrevocable. So when, when the king gives the signet ring to Mordecai along with the authority, he says, this is, this is what you need to do what you need to do for your people. So Mordecai comes up with a plan and at this time, there's about nine months left in the time between now and the, when the initial decree was supposed to be executed, when all of the Jews were supposed to be killed. So Mordecai issues a new decree. And this new decree says to all the Jews, on this day, the enemies of God's people, your enemies will come at you and they will try to kill you and destroy you. But here I am giving you the authority to arm yourself, to prepare yourself, to defend yourself on that day. And so because of Mordecai and his influence that he had gained in the kingdom and, and the reputation that he had gained, a lot of the people, they teamed up with the Jews to help them defend themselves and protect themselves on that day. So they had nine months to prepare, and, and they, they did. They prepared... Uh, well, and they ended up victorious on that day. The Jews were able to defend the enemies of uh, their enemies that came at them, and they, they were victorious and killed all of those who wanted to take their lives. <clears throat> so that's a brief um, walk through Esther, just to help you understand the book for those of you who are not familiar with it. And as is our custom to do in the Route 66 series, we have our MAP acronym where we point out a memento, something we want you to take home with you, an attraction, something that we want you to see, and the person of Jesus within the story. And I'm going to start with the attraction today. And my attraction is this, the importance of unity. Um, I'm going to turn over to John chapter 17, verse 11. 
I just want to show you how important unity is to even Jesus. At the end of his time on earth, when he knows his time is coming to an end, he's praying to the Father, kind of, um, I guess, a last prayer before he's gone and he knows he's leaving. You know, he's been, he's been on this earth for 33 years now. He's been around humanity enough to know how we operate and how we are. And so he's kind of praying for those that he's leaving behind. In, this ver in verse 11, he's praying for the disciples. And he says, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. He's asking the disciples, give them, give them that sense of unity that you and I have. And then on in verse, what is it, 20? Now he's praying for all of those who become believers after he is gone, and that's all of us. And he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. So what Jesus is saying is let them understand the power of unity. That when I'm gone, if, the, if they would unify themselves in my name, the power that they would have on the earth. And how many of you know if the church would quit fighting itself and we would get in unity, we would have a greater impact on this earth. Amen? We spend too much time picking on each other's doctrine and theology to, to do what we're here to accomplish. So unity is an extreme, an extremely important thing to God the Father and to Jesus. But let me point out to you how unity comes. Jesus came on the earth and he only acted in complete submission to the authority that God had in his life. Unity comes through authority and the submission to the authority. He wants us to live the kind of uni unity that you can live when you're submitted to authority. <clears throat> Esther obeyed Mordecai when she didn't reveal her Jewish heritage when she first uh, became the queen. She obeyed Mordecai when it was time to go before the king on the behalf of her people. And not only was this unity necessary for the survival of those two individuals, it was necessary for the survival of all of their people, the whole Jewish community. And the Jewish people were delivered because of the unity of those two individuals. And that unity was created and made powerful through authority. Submit yourself. Find godly authority to, to submit yourself to. You know, about 12 years ago, it'll be 12 years after the first of the year. Eric and I were living in San Angelo, Texas, and we were happy. We were in a church. We um, had a really good paying salary there. We both worked for the church. The only people, other people on staff were the pastor and his wife. So there were a lot of benefits that came with that. We went to um, conferences together. They were good friends of ours, so we had a lot of fun. We had our three kids. We had our four-bedroom house. Life was good. And we got a phone call one day out of the blue, and it was, well, it was Pastor John, Eric's dad. And that's who we have submitted ourselves to as the man of God in authority of our lives. 
and he had talked to our, he had spoken with our pastor at the time and made him aware that he was going to be taking this church in McKinney, Texas, and he needed help. And he said, listen, I'll take you and your wife, or I need Eric and Heather. Well, after discussing it with the pastor, they decided that it would be better if Eric and Heather went. So Pastor John called us, and he said, listen, this is what we've decided, that I need you to come to McKinney and help me with this church. Well, there was nothing in me. I love my in-laws, but there was nothing in me that wanted to pack up my three kids, leave the job that we had and the life that we had, the friends, the family, and move to McKinney, Texas. But we did. And for those of you that were around back then, you may remember that I came a couple months later, so maybe I drug my feet a little, but I did obey. So we came. And, you know, we didn't know what to expect. We weren't promised a position at the church. We weren't promised anything. We moved in with Eric's parents, and we stayed there, and we got jobs. Eric had to work whatever he could find, and we became the youth pastors. Um, and we were part-time youth pastors, and that was okay. We, we enjoyed it. We loved doing that. But we didn't know what God was opening up for us to have today. That, that that simple act of obedience would lead us to the life that we have today, that we would love McKinney so much, that we would become the pastors of this great church that we think is the best church in the world, to be honest with you. And it doesn't matter if you don't agree, because nobody can hear you. I've got the microphone. <laughs> but just through that simple act of obedience, not knowing what God would open up for us, but trusting Him, we walked into a much greater situation. We um, have formed lifelong friends. We're pastoring, the, like I said, the greatest church on earth. And so, but let me encourage you in this. As you submit yourself to the authority of a man of God or a woman of God, make sure that they too are submitted to a man of God or a woman of God themselves. Amen? Amen. All right, and now for our memento. And our, mem our memento is this. I will use the favor that God has given me to expand his kingdom. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The truth is, if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, you'll never have to worry for anything. And the truth is this, that we were all born for such a time as this. You were given the favor of God on your life to make an impact where you have influence. We're to use our lives, our resources, our influence, and our favor to advance the kingdom of God. And you might say, well, I don't really, I'm not really in a place of influence. I would say that you all are, that you all are in a place that God has given you favor. And so your first step is to recognize where the favor of God is in your life, where he's brought you, that job that you may up until this point hate, recognize it as the favor of God on your life, a favor for provision, and see that job as a mission field, that you're there to be a light. And after you recognize where God's favor has positioned you, then ask you, what's the purpose for this position? Like, yeah, I'm here to do a job, God, but what can I do for you? What can I do to further your kingdom while I'm in this workplace? Maybe it's that you're a parent. Ask God how you can, how you can further his kingdom through your children. So repeat after me. Do we have our memento up? Let's read this together. 
This is what I want you to take home. Read it with me. I will use the favor that God has given me to expand his kingdom. Amen. And finally, the person of Jesus. Now, the obvious person of Jesus in Esther is, in fact, Esther. Because she was in complete submission to her authority, just as Jesus was in complete submission to his authority when he was on this earth. And she laid down her life, or put her life on the line, anyway, to deliver her people. That's very Jesus-like. But I found the person of Jesus in Mordecai. After Haman was hanged, and Esther revealed to the king at that point Mordecai's relation to her, and the king took the ring and gave it to Mordecai along with all of Haman's house and his possessions. That that concern for that original decree um, that Mordecai had it came up. And Mordecai de, uh, decided to then issue another decree telling the Jewish people that they were to defend and protect themselves. And the Jewish people wound up being victorious, as we discussed earlier. They had God's favor and the authority granted to him to overcome any opposition that they would face. Jesus came to give you and to give me the authority to defend and protect ourselves from anything that the enemy might bring to us. In fact, he paid an extremely high price for that. And you have the same authority that he had when he walked on earth. You operate the same, in the same authority in your life to defend the, the enemies that will come at you and the, and the words that will come at you that, that won't bring promotion to your life. So what we can learn from Esther today is this, that God's favor has and will continue to put you in a place of influence. Use it for him. All of you have a place of influence. You have a circle or a sphere of influence around you. Use it to glorify God and to advance his kingdom. And use the authority Jesus came to give you when anyone or anyone Anyone or anything tries to come against that which God is trying to accomplish with your life. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And it's you who has the authority to make sure that that doesn't happen. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together and for your word. And for this great nation where we can come together and worship you as we please. And Lord, we thank you right now for this opportunity to hear your word. And we thank you that it will impact our lives, that when we leave here, it will make a difference. And Lord, thank you for the opportunities that you will give us to advance your kingdom. And we will take those opportunities, Lord. We will acknowledge the favor that's on our lives. And we will recognize the position that you have us in and what we're to accomplish there. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We would like to invite you to one of our service times in either McKinney or Dallas. Sunday mornings in McKinney at 9.30 and 11, and Wednesday evenings at 7, and in Dallas, 10.30 Sunday mornings, and our 1 o'clock One Cause Dallas Espanol service. You can find out more information about our church at onecausechurch.com. If you'd like to partner with our ministry, There is also a link on the front page of our website.